turn with me to John 17, please. John 17, we'll read verses 11 through 19 together this morning. John 17, verses 11 through 19. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank You so much for the ongoing instruction You give us through Your Word. Thank You, Holy Spirit, for teaching each and every one of us. I pray today that those who know You, Jesus, that they would be encouraged and challenged that they would be encouraged by the thought of what You are praying for us. That we'd also be instructed on how we ought to pray. I pray for those who are still without hope in this world. Those who are still enslaved to the sins of this world. I pray that You would give them eyes to see the glories of Jesus. That they would be given new hearts. They would love Jesus and hate sin, that they would repent of sin and turn to Christ. For we know that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Lord, do that work that only you can this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Have you ever had a time in prayer in which you struggled? with knowing how to pray. Ever had moments like that? I've definitely had moments like that. Sometimes the reason that words elude me is because of the extreme nature of a situation that I'm going through. Perhaps you've been through a moment of overwhelming grief or sorrow and found it hard to pray. Or maybe on the other side of it, you had a moment of exuberant happiness And you just couldn't catch words to express how thankful you were for what was happening. And maybe the words just escape us. Our ability to articulate our thoughts and feelings might feel inadequate at moments. Yet we long to pour our hearts out before God. I'm so thankful that in such moments we have a promise. And that promise comes in the person of an intercessor, the third person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit, who we're told specifically helps us in such moments. Romans 8, verses 26 and 27, we read, In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, 
For we do not know how we to, how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. There's tremendous comfort in those couple of verses. Not only do we have here that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with the communication that is here too deep for words, groanings too deep for words. He communicates in a way that, is, that isn't limited by vocabulary, isn't limited by our ability to bring to mind particular words. But not only that, but He always intercedes precisely in accordance with what God's will is. Do you hear that at the end? Because He intercedes, intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Holy Spirit applies the right balm every time. I'm sure all of us have seen the inadequacies of doctors. We're thankful for doctors and surgeons and for what they attempt to do. But we perhaps ourselves in our own life or in the lives of friends or loved ones have seen what happens when a doctor fails to diagnose a disease properly and prescribes a medication or the wrong medication. And as a result, sometimes in the effort of trying to help someone's issue, things can even get worse. What's wonderful about the Holy Spirit is that He never fails in diagnosis. He always knows exactly what's wrong, and He always knows exactly what spiritual help to apply. Thankful for that promise. But this brings up to our mind another struggle for us in prayer. We know that prayers that are not offered in accordance with God's will are prayers that God will say no to. So at times we might feel paralyzed when we come to prayer for we don't know God's will on the matter. Now that phrase, God's will, brings up a whole bigger discussion. And I feel it's important this morning to just talk about this a little bit. And I want to encourage any men in our church to come and join us on Wednesday nights because in a week from, a week from Wednesday we're about to start a new study together studying the subject of God's will from Kevin DeYoung's small book, Just Do Something. It's this little little tiny little paperback, but he does an excellent job um, describing how the Bible interacts with this understanding of God's will. I love the, even the subtitle to it, How to Make a Decision Without Dreams, Visions, Fleeces, Impressions, Open Doors, Random Bible Verses, Casting Lots, Liver Shivers, Riding in the Sky, etc., Sometimes that's the way we approach God's will, it seems, like if it's, as if it's something lost and we're hoping to stumble upon it one day. This is not the way that the Bible describes God's will. Particularly, there are two different ways in which God's will is described in the Scriptures, and I want to spend just a couple of moments talking about both of these and how they impact the way we pray. We say, how do we pray according to God's will? Well, there are two wills of God. The first one is God's sovereign will. The second one is His moral will. God's sovereign will and God's moral will. Let's first of all talk about what I mean by God's sovereign will. When we describe, when we talk about God's sovereign will, we're talking about His secret plan, a plan that is not known to us, by which He determines everything that happens in the universe. It's that which is not revealed, and the plan by which God determines everything that happens in the universe. The nature of God's sovereign will is certain. Romans 9.19, who resists His will? The answer is no one. Psalm 115, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases, right? God's sovereign will is certain. It's exhaustive. It includes everything that happens. Everything. It includes the germ as well as galaxies, right? Everything is included in God's sovereign will. I like Proverbs 16:33. Even things that appear like chance, the lot is cast into the lap. 
but its every decision is from the Lord. Ephesians 1.11 says that He is, listen to this, also we've obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will. He works all things after the counsel of His will. So it's certain, it's exhaustive, it's secret, because we only know it when it happens. If it happened, then it was part of God's sovereign will. But we don't know it unless it happens, except with two exceptions. The one is the element of prophecy, right? When God provides prophetic utterances in the Scriptures, we see these things being revealed before they come to pass. And there's always this nature to prophecy where God tells just enough so that way when it happens, it's obvious that God called it. (laughs) So you couldn't claim that somebody else made it come to pass. You couldn't claim that an idol or something of that nature made it come to pass. Only God could have made it come to pass. But he doesn't tell too much such that we become prideful and arrogant about what we know. I really think that's a healthy perspective to have towards the book of Revelation. There's enough there that when it happens, it will be evident that God is in control of it. It's happening according to God's plan. But there's not enough there such that we all sit back and go, oh, we figured it out. We know exactly how this is all going to play out. Jesus, uh, certain things have been told to us. For example, Jesus is going to return. That's been told to us. That's part of God's sovereign will that's been revealed to us. Um, The coming tribulation, the final judgment, all of these sorts of things are revealed to us. Also, what's revealed to us, though, is the ultimate destiny of the saved and lost. Sinners who reject Christ will receive the punishment that they deserve, eternal death. And those who are saved by God's grace and mercy will be given eternal life. Can I also say that God's sovereign will is perfect? It ultimately will lead to God's glory. How does God's sovereign will affect our praying? It's a question. How does this knowledge that God is sovereign and over all events, the germ as well as galaxies, how does, how does this affect the way we pray? Well, at times, I think we wish we knew God's secret sovereign will. We wish we knew that we had a plan and it was all mapped out before us. And then we're like, oh, I could pray very easily about this. I know exactly what's going to happen to me through this set of circumstances. But the problem is that's not revealed to us. The Lord knows, but it's not known to us. Sometimes we feel some frustration about that because we want to know, here's the situation. We'd like to know right now how you're going to solve all of that, Lord. And he's not telling us at this moment. And sometimes that lands us with some frustration. How do we then pray regarding this? Well, I think the way we respond to this reality has more to do with our attitude than the content of our praying. It has to do with our submission to him. It ought to foster humility in us. So as we go about planning, those must be always held with open hands. We don't know what tomorrow holds. So we can't pray with arrogance. There needs to be healthy doses of humility and submission within us as we pray. Sometimes we might even pray things like, if it be your will. We might say those things at times. I I do think sometimes we overuse statements like that. When God has specifically told us, that is my will, pray that way. You don't have to ask if it's my will. But there are other matters where that phrase is appropriate. And certainly that attitude is always appropriate. Lord, whatever you will, whatever you decide to come to pass, we will receive. There should be that attitude of submission and reception towards God's sovereign will. Also, may I just encourage you not to read into circumstances for prayer guidance. You know, apart from having specific revelation from God... Any circumstance can be taken to mean all sorts of things, right? 
I mean, this is always the danger of that. You know, people say, well, what are your circumstances? What are they telling you? Well, you don't read circumstances. Because any particular circumstance can be read in multiple ways. It could be either A, well, this is God closing a door on that. Or it could be, you need to persevere through that trial or difficulty. You see, you can't just judge circumstances and from that decide what it is to do. The Bible never instructs us to read providence. And it never tells us, as a matter of fact, it, it outright condemns trying to search into what God has not revealed. It is not for us. The things for us are for us and our sons forever, but the things not for us are not for us. Unless God has provided some supernatural revelation, it is best to avoid our spiritual interpretations of events and just reiterate that God is in control of all things and He's using them all for His glory. This also brings into account things like open doors and opportunities to do something. I would just say to all of those things, open doors are exactly what they are, an open door. You can either take it or not. <laughs> Unless God's Word says specifically you must do, go through that door or you must not go through that door, if it's open, it's truly open. And there's true freedom for Christians in such cases. So if there's an opportunity to take a job at such and such a place, how do you, how do you approach it? Do you just go, well, I have an open door, so we have to run through it? Absolutely not. You would apply wisdom principles to that as you would to any other decision. Things like weighing pros and cons, considering spiritual expediency in that case, considering all sorts of factors that the Bible does have something to say about, but in the end, many of those decisions are really open to us. And we really should experience freedom in making decisions that way. We read in Colossians 4.3 that Paul said that praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the Word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have been also imprisoned. It's, it's appropriate to pray for opportunities. There's nothing wrong with that at all. Praying, you know, especially things like what Paul's praying for here, right? I'm praying for an opportunity to share the gospel with people. Lord, open up that conversation with my coworkers, my neighbors, my friends, my family members. Praying for opportunities to serve. Teachers praying for opportunities to teach. So the content of our prayers, what we pray about, while submitted to God's sovereign will, is really more informed by God's moral will. Now, by moral will, we're referring to what God has revealed in Scripture, what God has given us in the Bible. In the Bible, God has provided us with information on how men ought to believe and how they ought to live. Contrary to God's sovereign will, where most of that is a mystery and unknown to us, God's moral will is revealed to us. And so instead of making guesses about these other things that are not told to us, we ought to spend more of our time investing it in things that God has revealed to us. It's really sad how sometimes we find ourselves longing for more information about other things, and meanwhile God's saying, I've given you so much. Do you not have enough to consider? Do you not have enough to study? Do you have not, not enough to meditate upon? 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 says that all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So God's Word informs the manner and the content of our prayers. The Bible is sufficient to equip believers for every good work. And prayer itself is one of those good works for which the Bible equips us. So if we're looking for prayer instruction, guess what? Let's go to God's Word. We should listen to God's Word and learn how we ought to pray. Because here we can be incorrect in our approach or incorrect in our requests. You see, 
There is no such thing as missing God's sovereign will. You can't miss it. God's sovereign will will come to pass. But you can be mistaken regarding God's moral will. And for that, we ought to pay a special heed to God's Word. God's Word informs our aspirations, our attitudes, our actions. It tells us why we ought to pray, how we ought to pray, what our ultimate goal in praying should be. And that involves time and effort and diligence. Praying, just as any other spiritual discipline, requires time. It requires commitment. And it's something like all the disciplines that grows as we obey. Have you noticed that in your own life? Things like service, the more you serve, the more it becomes just part of the fiber of your being. The more you give and express generosity, the more you want to do it. The more you show hospitality towards others, the more you want to be hospitable. The more you share the gospel with others, the more that, that fire is, is fanned within us. So it is with prayer. The more we pray, the more our prayer life grows. And this takes time. But I believe that one of the best ways that we can grow in praying is by spending more time in God's Word. I believe David is one of the best examples uh, for scripture, uh, for, for, uh, in, in Scripture for prayer. See the Psalms for the transparency of David's prayers. Uh, have you ever read one of the Psalms and been like, ooh, I don't know if he should have said that. You know? <laughs> I, I've had those moments. But he's just so transparent and real with God. He's expressing his heart. And, and you see these kind of waves even in the Psalms. You know, There's like this despair. And all of a sudden it's like, comes out of despair as he contemplates God's goodness and greatness and sovereignty. And he's like, yeah, God, you're going to rescue me. And then it's like, oh, but the waves are so, you know, it's like back and forth. Even this last week, I was telling some teachers, it almost feels sometimes in some of the Psalms that it's almost like he's you know, drowning in water and coming up for you know, a gasp of, of breath as he remembers then God's goodness and greatness towards him. But I want you to just note, I'm going to read 16 of the 176 verses that come from Psalm 119. These are the first 16 verses. And what you'll notice is in every verse, in every verse of this expression of praise unto God, this prayerful uh, praise unto God, you will see a description uh, of God's Word in every verse of these 16 verses. As a matter of fact, almost every verse through the 176 has some reference, some allusion to God's Word in each verse. And you see how these all blend together. His prayer and his knowledge of God's law and God's Word blend together. Listen to this. How blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. How blessed are those who observe His testimonies, who seek Him with all their heart. They also do no unrighteousness. They walk in His ways. You have ordained Your precepts that we should keep them diligently. Oh, that my ways may be established to keep Your statutes. Then I shall be not, ashamed, not be ashamed when I look upon all Your commandments. I shall give thanks to you with uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgments. I shall keep your statutes. Do not forsake me utterly. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I have told of all the ordinances of your mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and regard your ways. I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your word. 
How many times did that repeat it throughout that? He's meditating upon God's Word, and that leads him to praise and worship and adoration. And you see how his prayer is informed by what he knows about God in God's law, God's statutes, God's precepts, God's judgments, God's ways. So when we're unsure about whether we're praying in a way that pleases the Lord, we have to spend some more time in God's Word, where He tells us what He wants, what He desires, what He wills. John MacArthur points this out in this little book called Found God's Will. It's a really, really, really even smaller book than the other, than uh, Kevin DeYoung's book. But in it, he just says there's some very clear places in Scripture where the Bible just says, this is the will of God. You're always like, what is God's will? Well, there are a couple of places in Scripture where it even emphatically says that. This is God's will. Here's them real quickly. Number one, God desires that all Christians be under the control of the Spirit rather than under any other influence. Ephesians 5 says, Making the most of your time because the days are evil, so then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. What is God's will? That you not get drunk. That's one, that's one answer. And the point here is further than just alcohol. Don't be influenced by other things. Be influenced by the Holy Spirit. That's the Lord's will. The second thing is that God desires, God wills for you to be holy. 1 Thessalonians 4, we had this read, 3 through, 3 through 6, it says, This is the will of God, your sanctification, your holiness. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. So there's another very clear statement from Scripture. What is God's will? That we be holy, that we be sanctified, that we abstain from sexual immorality. Third, God desires that you submit to legitimate authorities. See this in 1 Peter 2. It says, Submit yourself, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether to a king as one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may... Silence the ignorance of foolish men. So God desires that His people submit to legitimate governing authorities. Fourth, God desires that you suffer. It is God's will that Christians suffer. First Peter 3.17, For it is better if God should will it that you should suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. And Philippians 1.29, For you has been granted not only to believe in His name, but also to suffer for His sake. And fifthly, God desires that you rejoice, pray, and give thanks. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-18, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So there are passages in the Scripture which just say very plainly, this is God's will. My question is, do we spend more time searching into the things that God has not revealed, wanting to know those things, when meanwhile God's saying, how are you doing with the things I've told you? Now think about that for just a minute. How are we doing with the things that God has told us? Are we abstaining from sexual immorality? Are we allowing the Spirit to influence us and control our behavior and actions? Or are we allowing other things to do that? Are we submitting properly to legitimate authorities in our life? Are we obeying our parents? Our wives, are you submitting to your husbands? Are we submitting to governing authorities? Are we doing that in, the, in a way that honors God? Are we enduring suffering properly? Are we seeing suffering as an opportunity to give glory to God? Do we have that kind of response to it? And are we rejoicing always? Are we praying without ceasing? Are we in everything giving thanks? You see, just in those, those things right there, I think we've got a lot to chew on, don't we? We have a lot to pray about. We have a lot of growing to do. 
But besides passages like that, that just say plainly, this is God's will for you, we can learn from other passages about what God's will is as well, His moral will. And in particular, if we're learning how to pray, then why not spend some more time in Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17? So here we are in the Lord's Prayer, part 3. And I want us to see, in verses 11 through 13, three requests that are prominent. Jesus makes three requests that I think really stand out here in the text. And it's these three that I want us to learn from. I want us to be encouraged by them because Jesus prayed these things for his disciples. And as we'll see next time we're together, these also rebound to those who would believe through their testimony, through their witness. So it ultimately is Jesus praying for us as well. But we also know that Jesus right now is interceding for his own. And so he's still praying prayers like these. So be encouraged that Jesus prays for us this way. And then also be instructed that here's a way we ought to pray for ourselves. and We ought to pray for one another. Three things, three requests I want us to see. A prayer for protection is the first one. The second is a hope for happiness. And third is a plea for purity. One is a prayer for protection. Two is a hope for happiness. And three is a plea for purity. Let's first of all consider a prayer for protection. And we see this in verses 11 and 12. I want to start with verse 12, noticing Jesus' personal involvement in the case. Look at verse 12. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. You see, while Jesus was with his disciples in his earthly ministry, he had protected them, and he had kept them safe. They were a special gift from the Father to the Son. Jesus has already said this multiple times in this text. He says, they were yours, you've given them to me. And so he's protecting them and keeping them safe. He saw them as a special gift. And now he gives an account of his stewardship. How has he done with those gifted men given unto him? He says, I've lost none of them. And then he makes a specific note of an exceptional case. Except the son of perdition, the son of destruction that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. This one had been marked out beforehand for betrayal and was not truly one of Jesus' own. The Scripture that he's alluding to here is probably Psalm 41.9, which says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Interesting. That is quoted by Jesus in John 13.18, just earlier before this, when he's talking about, he says, I know the ones I've chosen, but it is that the Scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread, my, my bread has lifted up his heel against me. He quotes that psalm there, just a couple chapters before this. He says, I know who are mine, and I know there's one of you that's a betrayer. There's one of you that is a devil who is about to betray me. Judas forever reminds us that associating yourself with the church, um, having friends that are Christians, growing up in a home with Christian parents, or any of these sorts of things, does not itself prove that you are really and truly one of Jesus' own sheep. Matthew Henry said, No man's place or name in the church will secure him from ruin if his heart is not right with God. Jesus warns in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, that everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. And on that day, many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Jesus says here, I've lost none of my own. Judas is an exception because he was never my own from the first place. 
It's not as if the other disciples never had moments of failure. We've certainly seen them throughout the Gospels, right? We see a long catalog of the disciples having misunderstandings and wrongdoings. And even here, as Jesus is about to be arrested, he's about to be deserted by all of his disciples. And as we already know, Peter is going to deny Jesus three times on this very night. But none of these would fall ultimately. And the reason why is because Jesus has preserved them. It's interesting. Jesus even tells Peter before all this happens, right? He says, Satan has desired to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that after you have fallen, you'll encourage your brothers. So Jesus says, I know you're going to stumble and fall in this account, but I prayed for you. You're going to be preserved through it. There will be a restoration. And God, my Father, is even going to use that circumstance such that you'll be an encouragement to the rest. Jesus says, this is what I've been doing. He's got a personal investment in this. And now he makes a personal trust. Verse 11, look at that now with me. I am no longer in the world. And they themselves are in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name which you've given me so that they may be one just as we are. Jesus is saying now, but now I'm about to depart from this world. Remember, this is the evening in which Jesus is about to be arrested. They're on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is going to pray. Judas is going to show up with soldiers. He's going to be arrested. And the next day, Jesus will be crucified, and he'll die, and he'll be buried. Jesus addresses here God as his Holy Father. It's an interesting title for God. It, it brings together two ideas that are really important in Scripture, and they're taught throughout all the Bible. Number one, that God is holy that God is transcendent, that God is other than us, right? He is the creator. Everything else is creation. He will always be utterly distinct from everything else because he alone is the uncreated one. He alone has life in himself. He alone is sovereign. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is high and lifted up. He is transcendent. He is other. And yet that term holy is then combined in with the term father, and Jesus repeatedly refers to God as Father throughout, the, throughout His ministry. Holy Father. So, the transcendent other one, God, is also described here as caring and loving and imminent and involved as a father would be with His children. But it's Jesus' own impending departure that, has, that He has in mind as He prays to His Holy Father to keep His disciples in Your name, which You have given Me. Reminds me of Proverbs 18.10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. He says, keep them in Your name. Keep them in loyal allegiance to the revelation of You that I have given them. Keep them in Your name. Jesus knew that His disciples could not withstand the coming persecution on their own. They lacked the resources to be able to stand. So He commits them to His Father's protection. His confidence was not in this ragtag group of individuals being able to stand up for themselves, but in His Father's preservation of these men. His confidence was in His Father's power as the Holy and Transcendent One and in His Father's love as their Father. 1 Peter 1, 3-5 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Listen, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, which is reserved in heaven for you, listen, who are protected by the power of God 
through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. We have this sure hope of what's to come. And we know that we'll get it because we're protected by the One who gives us that thing. Here we see that Jesus prays that His Father would protect His disciples. He hands these men over to the very One who had given them to Him. Right? Jesus said, you gave them to Me. It's almost as if Jesus is saying here, I now hand them back to you, Father. Hold them as I'm leaving this place and they're going to be left here in this world. Hold them. I mentioned last time that God demonstrates His own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God shows His love for us by giving us His Son. God so, so loved the world that He gave His Son. But, listen to this too, God so loves His Son that He gave Him a people. He gave Him a people who would be redeemed by Jesus' blood, who would be conformed to Jesus' image, and would throughout all of eternity sing Jesus' praise. You see, it is both true that God so loved us that He gave us His Son, but it is also true that God so loves His Son that He gave us to the Son. You see, what's special about us is not something inherent to us. But what makes us valuable is we are a gift from the Father to the Son. Have you ever received a gift before and it like, in and of itself, it had little to no value? I mean, one of the, one of my favorite things that way is when, you know, since we have four little kids in our house, I love receiving special gifts from my kids. I mean, they are just like the best. Ashley makes some of the very, very best gifts and I love them very much. But Ashley and I would both know that the, the very piece of paper that she scribbled some crayons on and drew some pictures for me, that itself isn't worth much to, to most people, right? To most people, they might see it and they throw it away instantly. But to a father, it means a whole lot, right? Because it's a symbol of my daughter. I value the gift because of who it comes from, right? Well, if that's the case for us as humans, how do you think it is within the Godhead? God the Father has given a gift to His Son. God the Son loves His Father. And if we, Christians, are the gift, how do you think He values us? He values us because we're a gift from the Father. And so here Jesus says, those whom you've given to me, I'm about to leave them. They're going to still be in the world. I'm going to return back to you. I ask, Holy Father, that you hold them, that you guard them. I guarded them while I was with them here on the earth. I'm praying as this, I'm about to go to the crucifixion. I pray, Holy Father, that you hold on to them. And embedded in this desire, he says, that they might be one as we are. He, he, he speaks of their unity. And he says, it's not that they're going to be made united through some further event. They already have unity in the Son, in the Father, but that they would continue in that expression of unity one for another. Jesus prays that they would be protected, that they would be held together. And he asks his Holy Father to do this. So Jesus prays for his disciples' spiritual protection. Next we notice a hope for happiness in verses 13 and 14. A hope for happiness. Jesus' disciples had been changed by the Word. Look at verse 14. I have given them your Word. What a gift. Jesus came and gave these men God's Word. And as a result of having been given God's Word, they were transformed. But we must not take God's Word for granted. What a treasure it is. There's no book like the Bible. There is no book like the Bible. The more books you read, the more you realize they're not the Bible. Right? There is no book like 
God's holy word. Now, how thankful we ought to be. Not only that the Bible is translated into English so we can enjoy that, but that we can each have our own personal copy. And not only have a personal copy, but most of us have multiple copies of God's Word in multiple translations. And we have multiple tools and resources that we can look at in just a moment all on God's Word. Do you know how many people have had that throughout the history of mankind? What a blessing we have been given. Have we taken advantage of that blessing? God's Word is transformative. The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces as far as the division of joints and marrow and is able to discern the thoughts and tensions of the heart. Jesus' disciples have been changed by the Word. Jesus said, I gave them your Word. And as a result, look at the rest of verse 14, and, they, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world just as I am not of the world. Due to having been saved out of the world, the world's attitude towards Jesus' disciples drastically changes. The danger that Christians face, those dangers are real. And they're urgent. We, right now, have been called out of the world, and yet we still live in the world. It's like we're living in enemy territory. It's actually the way it's described in 1 John 5.19. We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Oh yes, it's a temporary reign. Satan will be put in his place. But at the moment, Satan has a temporary reign over the world. Judgment is coming. Yes, it is. But at the moment, we're dwelling in enemy territory. Jesus already told his disciples what to expect from the world and where to go for courage in John 16. He said, Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone. And yet I'm not alone, because the Father is with me. These things I've spoken to you, so that you, in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation. But take courage. I have overcome the world. He says, you've been changed by the Word. You've been hated by the world. But you've also been granted my joy. Look at verse 13. Now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they might have my joy, having been made full in themselves. Jesus' prayer for His disciples does not end with His desire that they be protected. He knows that they'll be under attack, and therefore He knows they're in desperate need of safety that only His Father could, could guarantee. However, Jesus wants more for His disciples. Not that they would just merely be shielded from the world, it's not mere faithfulness percentages that Jesus is concerned with here. He wants His disciples to experience true joy. So when I say that Jesus here has a hope for happiness, I mean happiness in the true biblical sense. He wants them to have true and lasting joy. And not just any joy, the fullness of His own joy. John 15, 11, These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you, so that your joy may be full. John 16, 24, Until now you've asked nothing in my name, asking or receive, so that your joy may be made full. Jesus not only longs for His disciples to be protected, but for them to experience amazing joy. It is a lie of the devil that the world gives happiness, and God just has a bunch of rules. Jesus longs for His followers to experience the full measure of His joy within them. 
Everyone knows that the lies of the devil are just that, they're lies. Temporary fleeting moments of ecstasy followed by deep regret and sorrow. Right? Meanwhile, when things are done the way that God has called them to be done, there is true and lasting joy. Jesus even prays this prayer out loud for this purpose. Now I come to you and these things I speak in the world. I think what he's saying here is, I'm saying these things out loud. Remember, we told you, we talked about this earlier. John 17 is the longest recorded prayer of Jesus. Throughout the rest of the New Testament, we have many times where Jesus retreated away, off by himself. There were no other people around and he's praying. We have multiple occurrences of that happening. And we have small little prayers recorded from Jesus. This is by far the longest one. And here Jesus tells us why he prays it out loud. He says, I speak these things in the world so that these men would be encouraged by the things I'm saying. I speak these out loud so they would be encouraged. What a great reminder to us about the value of public praying. The value of praying even in small groups, praying with one another. Why do we do that? I mean, can't God just hear us? silently, all by ourselves, not praying out loud with one another. What's the purpose of it? Well, here Jesus says, I pray these things out loud in the world for them to hear. Because I, think, I really do believe that God ministers encouragement to fellow believers as we pray out loud together. God works supernaturally through prayer. How many of you have had that experience? Where, yeah, sure, I'm certain you were praying about the thing that you prayed with somebody else about for some time before you talked to them. But when you sat down and had more people together with you praying about the matter, how even though maybe the exact specifics of what was going on didn't instantly change, there was a comfort applied to you. God does this. And here Jesus is praying a prayer that not only his disciples would know and hear and be able to take with them, but now it's recorded in Scripture for us to learn and grow and be encouraged by as well. The joy that Jesus invites His followers to fully enjoy is not a momentary happiness found only in immediate circumstances, but an everlasting joy found in God's eternal purpose being fulfilled. Jesus endured the cross. He's about to go to the cross. And He's talking about joy. He's about to go to the cross. But we know that He endured the cross, despising its shame for the joy that was set before Him. We ourselves, Jesus is inviting us to enter into that joy. That joy which looks past present hardships, past present difficulties towards the, in these trials that we come, towards the future, towards the rewards that are yet to come. Jesus prays that his disciples will find true joy in seeking God's glory and putting the needs of others before himself. Joy that's found in communion with God. A joy that's only made possible because of what Jesus was about to do on their behalf. And we ourselves are invited that same communion, that fellowship, that relationship with God. And that is where true joy is found. First John 1, 3 and 4 says, We've seen, heard, and proclaimed this also to you, that you too might have fellowship with us. So he says, we're telling you about Jesus, that you might have fellowship with us too. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son. He says, we have fellowship with God the Father and His Son. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. This is where joy is found. For that matter, for that reason, a, a joyless Christian is kind of a sort of contradiction, right? A joyless Christian is sort of a contradiction. If, if you feel yourself lacking joy, maybe I could say it this way. If you feel yourself experiencing a lack of joy and you know Jesus, you need to sit down and contemplate what is hindering your communion with God? What's hindering your communion with God?
Have you allowed any other objects to take your attention off of Him? You need to confess those as sin and ask God to remove whatever's hindering that and return to God's Word, return to prayer, return to singing praise, return to sharing the good news of the Gospel with others. So Jesus prayed for His disciples' protection. He had hope for their happiness. And last but not least, He pled for their purity. We see a plea for purity in verses 15 through 19. The first part of this is a prayer against worldliness. Look at this in verses 16 and 17. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So, Jesus, in verse 15, verse before that, He says, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. So, there's that note of protection again. Keep them from the evil one. Protect them from the evil one. So, Jesus prays that His disciples be kept from the evil one, verse 15. But in verse 17, we see that Jesus is praying that his disciples be kept for the truth. Kept from the evil one, but kept for the truth. It was Jesus' distinctiveness in the world that drew the world's attention, either for good or for ill. Jesus was utterly different from everyone else. J.C. Ryle said, Holy living is the great proof of the reality of Christianity. Men may refuse to see the truth of our arguments, but they cannot evade the evidence of a godly life. You see, it's the godly life combined with truth, the truth of the gospel that makes a huge impact on the world. We have been called out of the world, but we have not been taken out of the world. Sanctify has the same root here as holy. He says to sanctify them, to be made holy, to be set apart. And we know that the term holy is only properly applied to God Himself. God is holy. He is holy. Now, anything else that is described as holy can only be holy derivatively, right? He is holy. Anything that is otherwise described as holy is because of some connection with Him who is holy. Nothing else is holy in and of itself. God is holy in and of Himself. Everything else is holy as it's connected with Him. Who is holy. So, some things set apart for God in the Old Testament, even if it was a utensil or a plate, it, it was holy if it was set apart for God's use, right? It was set apart for some particular use for God's glory and kingdom, then it was holy. Otherwise, it was profane. It was profane meaning common. Everything else is common. There are things that were holy, set apart for God and His purposes. So, if someone is described as being holy, they're set apart for God and His purposes. And as a result, then, someone who's set apart for God will love what God loves and hate what God hates. And certainly, then, that's what gets us to that, what we normally think of with the word holy is moral or chaste. You know, someone who lives uprightly. We think of that with holiness. And that's also true because of something set apart for God, they'll take on the characteristics of God. But holiness primarily is this idea of being set apart, being distinct, other. And if someone is set apart for God in purpose and mission, Jesus here says, these men have been sanctified, set apart for you, Father. This is a great reminder to us. Certainly, our holiness is seen in the language we use and the actions that we take, the entertainment we engage in. I mean, all these sorts of things can be described and talked about. But it's the overall direction of our lives, the purpose for which we get up in the morning, what, what drives us? What goals are we setting? What dreams are we following after? What is our manner in 
all circumstances. Those things say something about our holiness too, right? It's not just that this, this person lives morally upright. It's what's the passion of their life. What are they after? Are they after what God is after? Are they longing for what God longs for? Because there are a whole bunch of Pharisees that looked moral, but were not holy. They were not longing for the things of God. They're actually hating God and hating God's Son sent to them, right? They looked moral, but they were not holy. Holiness is much more than that. Certainly it impacts our morality, but it has everything to do with what's at the heart of us. What are we after? We're going to make one statement about what your life is about. What is it? And you can tell from that statement whether or not you are being sanctified. You see, our biggest need is sanctification. We know that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, is working on our hearts to lead us into all truth, making us more like Jesus. It's truth that sanctifies us. But here Jesus explains the instrument or tool that the Holy Spirit uses to sanctify us. And He says, Your Word is truth. Sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. Notice, God's Word is not even described here as Your Word is true. But Your Word is truth. You see, if it was true, we might mistakenly believe that God's Word is somehow true because it applies to another standard that makes it true. But God's Word is truth. It is the standard. It's not true because it applies to some other standard that makes it true. It is truth. It is the standard. You don't have to establish its truthfulness. It is truth. And everything else is judged in accordance with it. God's Word is truth. In it, there is no error since it comes from God who cannot lie and who brings to pass all of His glorious purposes, God's Word can always be trusted. What God said will come to pass. His Word is the final authority. By His Word, everything else is tested. Consider it practically. Jesus says, Sanctify me in truth. Your Word is truth. How do we become more like God? More holy. Holy as He is holy. How do we become like Him if we don't know what He loves? And we don't know what he hates. How does that happen if we don't know who he is? You see, Jesus says, you're going to sanctify them, Father, by the working of the Holy Spirit, through the Word. Through your truth, which is given here in your Word. Your Word is truth. So it's a prayer against worldliness. It's a prayer against worldliness. It's a prayer for purity. A prayer for holiness. But it's also a prayer against monasticism. You know, it's a prayer against all of us joining up into a monastery. That's not what Jesus is praying for here. He says in verse 15, I do not ask that you might take them away from the world. Verse 18 19, Just as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sake I sanctify myself that they themselves might be also ones having been sanctified in truth. Jesus says, I do not ask you, Father, to take them out of the world. We all know of Enoch, right? In Genesis 5.24, he walked with God and was not, for God took him. Can God take someone out of the world? Absolutely, he can. He did it with Enoch. You know, in the list of all those guys, you know, they live for a certain number of days and then they die. You know, and these guys live and they have children and then they die. You know, and also Enoch, you know, he's walking with God and then he was not. 
He didn't say he died. He was not. For God took him. Can God take someone? Absolutely. He can just take him right up. He did it with Elijah. Remember Elijah's chariot of fire comes down and all of a sudden, in a whirlwind, Elijah's just spirited away right to the Lord. Is God able to take his servants home immediately? Absolutely he is. But Jesus prays here that they will remain. He says, I don't ask you, Father, to take them out of the world. I want you to preserve them in the midst of their stay on earth. I pray that you protect them against the evil one because we are in a spiritual warfare and Satan is prowling like a lion seeking someone to devour. He is hurling fiery arrows, Ephesians 6. He knows all that's happening. Protect them from the evil one, Father, but don't take them out of the world. If the disciples were utterly removed from the world, then the world would be left without a witness to the gospel. He says, I'm not saying take them out of the world. I'm sending them into the world. Just, Father, as you sent me into the world, I send them into the world. Ryle says, how could Christ's people do any good in the world if taken away from it immediately after conversion? How could they exhibit the power of grace and make proof of faith and courage and patience as good soldiers of the crucified Lord? We can imagine a good many men who have died in horrific battles. And any one of them, a general, might desire to pull off the front lines, especially those who have exhibited great courage and fortitude, right? Battle-hardened veterans who have stood in there through thick and thin. It might be a desire on the general's part to save those men out of the conflict, take them out of that place where they themselves might endure further difficulties. Yet I'm sure at the same time the general has to think, To take away those men from the front lines is to leave the line weaker. To take those men out of there is to leave the rest of the troops that are down in the trenches without their valuable expertise. So on one level, you've done such a great job, I want to take you out of there. But on another level, you've done such a great job, I want you to stay in there. Jesus says that he leaves his disciples here. For a while, it would be much better for one who's converted to be brought straight away to heaven it's better for the rest of the world that they stay a little longer. This is exactly the conundrum that Paul finds himself in in Philippians 1. He says, for to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. He said, if I die, it's better. It's better if I die. I'm ready to go see Jesus. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart to be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. I'll say, I'm ready to go home. You ever had days like that where you really, I'm really ready to go home? Like, Jesus, come and get me. I'm ready to go home right now. Too bad we don't always feel that. We should always feel that. We're always ready. Jesus, come and take me. Yet, it's the Lord's will often that we stay on here a little longer. Christians still living in the world is the means by which those whom God is drawing to Himself hear the Gospel. And it is also the means by which the rest of the world is preserved. We are a preserving influence on the world. Can you think of what situation would arise if right now, this second, God came and took every single Christian out of here and left the world without any Christians in the entire world? It's kind of interesting because Christians get so much flack from so many different directions, right? I mean, the world hates us, right? And it's not just news and media. I mean, personal relationships and coworkers and all kinds of stuff, right? The world hates Christians. But meanwhile, if all the Christians were removed from the world, how do you think it would go for the world? 
Jesus had sent His disciples on mission into the world just as His Father had sent Him on mission into the world. And so Jesus does not desire for His disciples to cloister themselves away in a monastery or dwell utterly separate from the world in their own commune without any contact with the rest of the world. Certainly there are good reasons for us to be careful about the associations we make. Certainly we ought not to um, you know, be unequally yoked with unbelievers. If you're getting married and you're a Christian, the only ones you can even consider are other Christians. And not just somebody who says, I am a Christian or puts on a Christian church, but really loves Jesus, right? They're the only people you should even consider to get married to. And certainly this has implications for the workplace. It certainly has implications for membership of a local church, education of our children. There's all kinds of implications we can talk about along those lines. But the end goal of what we're after is not utter isolation. We're not setting up a compound and putting up a big high fence and saying nobody can come in here and let's all just stay inside of our little comp- compound. Praise the Lord that I don't believe in that. Um, if I did, we quickly. Our community must always be looking outwardly, reaching out to those who don't know Jesus, for ultimately our struggle is against not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and rulers and powers and the forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So in order for us to fulfill the mission that God has given us, that Jesus has given to us, we must remain in the world while not being of the world. We must maintain our saltiness. Otherwise, how are we going to season the world? And we must come in contact with the world. For how do you season something if you never come in contact with it? You see, we have to be distinct, pure, holy, and yet in the world. In order to shine as a light in the world, you must shine as a light, and you must be in the world shining. So we must not compromise with the world, nor disengage from the world. We're to remain in the world, all the while bearing witness to the greatness, goodness, and glory of God. Well, we close with this thought. Look at verse 19. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. Jesus says, in order that they be sanctified, I sanctify myself. I sanctify myself in order that they might be sanctified. Makes us think of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, high priest, you know, day of atonement would come, and before he could even bring the blood into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle blood over the mercy seat, he himself had to make an offering or a sacrifice for himself. He had to ceremonially cleanse himself before going into the Holy of Holies. So, you know, make no mistake about it, the high priest going in there is still a sinner. He needed to be ceremonially sanctified, ceremonially cleansed, before he could go into the Holy of Holies and offer atonement for God's people. Jesus says here, I sanctify myself. I sanctify myself. What's so fascinating is that there's a compounding of images that all come together in Jesus. Because Jesus is not only the great high priest, but He is also the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. He sanctifies Himself as both the one offering the sacrifice and as the sacrifice. And Jesus says, I sanctify Myself in order that they would be sanctified for the task in front of them. The only righteousness that we can have is because our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, has the righteousness that we need. And He was willing to live the life that none of us has or can. And then He was willing to lay down His life as a ransom for many. 
You see, in the Gospel, we're told that a man who is a sinner can have his sins forgiven because there was a sinless, spotless sacrifice that laid down his life and shed his blood. And we're also told in the Gospel that not only are our sins forgiven, but we are granted the righteousness of Jesus. His righteousness is given to us. We can be holy as God is holy only because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. The mission which Jesus' disciples are sent on can only succeed in Jesus. Because without Jesus' life, crucifixion, death, and resurrection, there is no good news to share. There is no good, good news to give without Jesus. Without Him, there's no gospel. There is no good news. There's just bad news. But praise be to the Father that there is good news. For Jesus did die for sinners and then He rose again for their justification. And anyone who repents of their sin and believes in Jesus will be set apart, will be given eternal life, and be sent on mission for Him. Jesus teaches us that it is a Christian's lot to be despised by the world, but it's our duty to be a witness to the world, and it's our privilege to be delivered from the world one day. And so our Lord and Savior prays for our protection. He hopes for our happiness. He pleads for our purity. And thank Thanks be to Him that He is still, right now, continually interceding for us in these regards. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank You so much for Your wondrous grace and love. Certainly forever proven in the giving of the greatest gift, Your Son. Thank You for Your protection. Thank You for sharing with us Your joy. And thank You for leading us into greater and greater purity and enjoyment of Your holiness. I pray that You would prepare us all the more with each passing day to share the good news of Jesus Christ with others around us. Grow us in our praying. I pray that in moments where we are at a loss for words that You would, Holy Spirit, intercede for us as groaning is too deep for words. Lord, as is so often the case, there's so much more growing we have to do. And I pray we would spend more time in Your Word and learn more about what it means to commune with You and to talk with You about everything. Lord, thank You for Your ongoing love and mercy and grace given to us. You be glorified in and through our ministry, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.